The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Matthew Arthur, I am your host, and on this episode I am presenting sermons by Bishop Donald Sanborn. We are pleased to present In Veritate, free of charge to our listeners, by the gracious sponsorship of Most Holy Trinity Seminary. And now, on the subjects of Expectation of the Messiah and Gaudete Sunday, we present In Veritate. This, the third Sunday of Advent, provides us with yet another gospel of the expectation of the Messiah. It must be remembered that the entire Old Testament is one great expectation of the New Testament and that every major personage and event of the Old, every institution and ritual looked forward to and was a foreshadowing of something in the New Testament. The law of Moses had no other purpose than to prepare for the law of Christ. And the sacrifices in the temple had no other purpose than to foreshadow the sacrifice of Calvary and of the Mass. The ritual ablutions and purifications of the Jews were symbols of baptism and the interior purity of the New Testament. Moses was a symbol of Christ the lawgiver, David a symbol of Christ the king, Melchizedek and Abraham a symbol of Christ the priest, Isaac, a symbol of Christ the victim, the prophets, a symbol of Christ the teacher. The great female figures of Anna, Esther, and Judith were all prefigurations of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Ark of Noah was a prefiguration of the church. The descent of the fiery cloud on Mount Sinai and the burning of the law onto the tablets were prefigurations of Pentecost. These are only some of the many, many prefigurations of the new law in the old law. Thus the Jews lived in constant expectation. Already Moses, who had died about 1,300 years earlier, spoke of the great prophet. He was like Moses, to act as a new mediator between God and men, establishing a new and more perfect covenant between God and his creatures. Daniel, about 500 years before Christ, had prophesied to the year the coming of the Messiah. And his time was now, that is, the time in which St. John the Baptist is preaching. And the Pharisees knew it, the Jews knew it, everyone knew it. We understand then why the Sanhedrin sent a delegation to St. John the Baptist. The Sanhedrin was a public body which ruled the Jewish people at the time. 
The Sanhedrin in Hebrew means house of judgment. It was the supreme tribunal charged with the care of all questions regarding religion and was comprised of 72 members. Its members were taken first from the chief priests, that is, the heads of the 24 priestly classes, as well as those who had already filled the office of high priest in the temple. Second, it comprised the ancients or elders, that is, the heads of the tribes and the principal families. Third, it included the scribes or doctors of the law, whose function it was to transcribe the sacred scriptures, to study them and to explain them to the people. It was therefore this body that our Lord was summoned to by Caiaphas. And it was before this body that our blessed Lord was slapped in the face by the same Caiaphas, accusing him of blasphemy because he said that he would return to judge the living and the dead. We know from the life of Christ that the bulk of this body of the Sanhedrin was rotten. Scribes, chief priests, and Pharisees were the principal antagonists of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is they who try to trip him. It is they who think evil of him in their hearts and who plot to kill him. It is they who hire and pay Judas, who arrest Jesus. And it is they who incite the crowd to cry out, We have no king but Caesar, and let his blood be upon us and upon our children, and crucify him, crucify him. It is they, finally, who will gloat at the foot of the cross and blaspheme the Son of God and the King of the Jews right down to his dying last breath. We thus conclude that the delegation to St. John is not in good faith. Already these worldly and parasitic overlords of the people, full of hypocrisy and lies, felt threatened by the austerity not only of John's message of penance, but also even of his clothing and lifestyle, to use a modern expression, of the most extreme form of mortification. His insistence on interior conversion, his rite of baptism, and his announcement of the coming of the Messiah was a threat to the easy life of hypocrisy of most of the members of the Sanhedrin. Notice that no Pharisee condemned Herod's marriage. St. John the Baptist did, and he was imprisoned and beheaded for it. But no Pharisee had condemned the marriage of Herod which was clearly forbidden by the law, but rather only St. John pointed the finger of accusation. No Pharisee was imprisoned. No Pharisee's head demanded by the libidinous non-wife of Herod, but only that of St. John the Baptist. St. John 
blatantly and tersely states that he is not the Christ. We can imagine a few everlasting moments of silence as they stood there bothered by the swiftness and brevity of his response. It should not be forgotten that they represent the religious authority in Israel. It would be akin to a Catholic priest today being interrogated by a delegation from the modernists sent by John Paul II. The next question to St. John is, Art thou Elias? Here it must be explained that the prophet Malachi prophesied that God would send Elias before the end of the world. Behold, the prophet states, speaking for God, I will send you Elias the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with anathema. The Jews erroneously took the prophecy to mean that Elias would precede the Messiah, the first coming of Christ, and not the second coming of Christ. And St. John simply answers, I am not. The third question is, art thou the prophet? By the prophet is meant the great prophet predicted by Moses. It refers to the Messiah. But the Jews erroneously think that it is someone who will precede the Messiah. And again, the answer is a short no. At their insistence as to who he was, St. John quotes a passage of Isaiah the prophet concerning himself. As we saw last week, our blessed Lord did the same thing in order to identify himself with the ancient prophecies. Thus, at every turn, ample evidence is given to the Jews that they might easily recognize our Lord Jesus Christ as the true Messiah predicted by the prophets. The representatives of the Sanhedrin ignore his answer that he is the predicted precursor of the Messiah and ask him why he is baptizing. They are troubled by his baptizing since it is, in their view, a renegade apostolate, not falling under either their law or the Mosaic law. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, he had to undergo baptism in order to participate in all of the rights and the privileges of the chosen people. Although known to the Jews, therefore, baptism was nevertheless a very unusual thing. And in any case, it was being misused by St. John, they thought, who was baptizing in a baptism of penance. But we already see their blindness since we know from the commentaries of the rabbis that the Jews expected the Messiah, that the Messiah would perform baptisms on the people and that the prophets who accompanied him 
or who preceded him would also perform baptism. Thus, St. John's response that he is the precursor of the Messiah should have opened their eyes to their own expectations. But their eyes were shut tight and remain shut tight to this day. St. John patiently responds to their protestation by indicating to them that his baptism is merely a preparatory baptism for that of the Messiah, which will have a truly spiritual effect of remitting sin. It is as if he is saying, you expect a baptism in preparation of the Messiah. Now the rite administered by me, the predicted herald of the Messiah, is that preparatory baptism. And the reception of this rite is a duty all the more incumbent upon you, since that Messiah is already in your midst. And St. John finishes with a profession of humility with regard to the coming of Christ. The deputies of the Sanhedrin depart, their blindness of heart confirmed. The sending of this deputation was clearly not to find out the truth about St. John the Baptist or the Messiah, but rather it was to sully the reputation of the Baptist in the eyes of the people, They were jealous of the fact that he was the leader of a great movement of interior conversion with a rite of baptism and that he was leading many people away from the control of the Pharisees. Just as they tried so many times with Christ, they also sought to catch St. John in his words. If he said that he was the Messiah, they would denounce him as an imposter as they did in our Lord's case. If he said that he was, he was not the Messiah, they would denigrate him in front of his followers who thought that he was. And just as in many other instances of the gospel, the wicked questions of the Pharisees are turned by God into an occasion of God's glory. Think of the question of tribute to Caesar, which the Pharisees fancied as a foolproof trap for Jesus. This drawing of good from evil, even uh, from the evil of those evil hearts which crucified Christ, is a reminder of the remarkable mystery of divine providence. The ironclad principle of this mystery is that no evil can be permitted by God which does not somehow contribute to a greater good. It is a consoling thought as we contemplate the problems of our church and of our society today. Somehow, God's glory will be served by these evils. Another lesson of the gospel today is that of humility. St. John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, greater than Moses, greater than David, than Isaiah, than Jeremiah, (coughs) than even Abraham. 
by the fact that he is the prince of all the prophets and of all the precursors of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He is the personification of the entire Old Testament, of the law, of the prophets, the kings, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the rituals, of everything that God had said or done in the Old Covenant in order to prepare the Jews for the Messiah. He is the living personification of the entire 4,000 years of preparation for the Messiah. Like a great symphony with many players, St. John is the final crescendo and finale. He is the trumpet blast for the approaching Messiah for whom the world groans in its agony of sin. Yet his humility is exemplary. He will be exceeded in this only by St. Joseph, our Blessed Lady, and of course by the Holy Savior himself. There are few in this world who fear praise rather than censure, and few who voluntarily lower themselves in the sight of others. For most, their only occupation seems to be to gain the esteem of other men. Even the drive of impure passion has as its end the capture of the esteem of another person and leads at times to absurd vanity. Even little things like clothing and hairstyles, makeup, the style of shoes that you wear, the way you walk or the way you talk or the car you buy, the house you live in, the stores that you shop, the words you use, the accent that you speak with, are all done in order to gain the attention and the esteem of other people. We all conceal our defects with great care. And those which we cannot cover up, we excuse or justify and limit our friendships to those who will excuse or justify them with us. For we cannot bear to be reproached. We must have the esteem and not the opprobrium of others. It is our daily bread. We set out in the morning with a renewed vigor to maintain the esteem that we have already gained and to conquer new territory, sometimes in the midst of fierce competition, whether it should be in the business place or the beauty parlor. It matters little. It is the same overcrowded pen of peacocks in which human beings seek to attract the attention of others to themselves and to inflate their pride. Life is like a great stage in which we, the players, enter every day, each struggling against the other to obtain more esteem 
and to realize more pretensions. Against this sobering but true accusation against our pride and vanity, let us apply the humility of St. John the Baptist, the precursor of Jesus Christ, who clearly declared to us that the road to exaltation is by humility and voluntary abasement. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you are enjoying this episode. We would like to remind you that you are listening to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Matthew Arthur, presenting sermons by Bishop Sanborn on The Expectation of the Messiah and Gaudete Sunday. And now for the continuation of In Veritate. The reason why the priest wears rose vestments today is that the church is anticipating with joy the arrival of the Savior at Christmas. Just as the Israelites in the Old Testament must have been consoled when they heard their prophets speak of the future Messiah, so does the church rejoice as she relives the years of anticipation of the Savior of the world. Advent commemorates that time of humanity a full 4,000 years, twice the time from the Roman Empire until now, when there was no Savior, no Blessed Sacrament, no Sacrament of Penance, no Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. There was only hope, hope of a Savior, a hope that had to live from generation unto generation, from century to century, there was only a tenacious faith in the promises that were made to Abraham and to his seed. But today the church rejoices because the Lord is near, as St. Paul says in his epistle. This joy of the church means more than merely a commemoration of the anticipation of the Savior in the Old Testament. Rather, this joy has a spiritual and mystical sense, for it is, for in this life, our true Christmas will be a holy death, in which we will be united to God in the beatific vision. This will be the ultimate possession of God and the ultimate joy. But before that time, there is an anticipated joy, which is the joy of possessing God in our souls through the state of sanctifying grace. In a very real sense, the Lord is near us and his nearness gives joy to our hearts. Just as the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament were a source of joy and consolation to those who awaited him, so is the presence of God in our souls a source of joy to us who await to see him in heaven. 
And just as there was great joy in the shepherds and in the magi when they actually laid eyes upon the long-awaited Savior, so also will our joy be abundant and complete when we see God in heaven. The soul experiences joy when it possesses spiritual goods. Being a spirit, the soul cannot be satisfied with a material thing. The soul does not long for food, for drink, or gold, or comfortable furniture, or glitter, or nice clothing. The soul delights in justice, in charity, in mercy, in kindness, in beauty, in fortitude, and other spiritual goods which money cannot buy. For this reason, our divorce rate is so high. Although couples can buy and enjoy goods with unprecedented ease owing to unprecedented prosperity. Nevertheless, their souls are starved because their materialistic selfishness deprives them of the most basic spiritual goods. They become unhappy and break up or their concupiscence for the flesh is so strong and intemperate that their relationships are based completely on the flesh and their souls are starved even for the most basic joys of human friendship. The soul is blind to material and fleshly pleasures and craves these spiritual goods of which I speak. St. Francis de Sales uses the image of a little baby who would care nothing about the necklace of precious jewels around the neck of his mother, but would be interested in a single thing and that is his mother's milk. So the soul cares only for the spiritual. The reason for this is that the soul is made by God for himself and will not rest until it finds its joy in God. Thus, in this life, the possession of God through sanctifying grace is the greatest of all joys. For when God comes and takes up his abode in the soul, he orders the soul profoundly and gives it peace, a peace which the world cannot give. When this possession of the soul by God is perfect, the joy and the peace of the soul is perfect, 
so perfect, in fact, that it cannot be taken away by any worldly tribulation. Now, this is not to say that we cannot suffer or that we cannot feel pain or loss in this life. No, it is to say, however, that no pain or loss in this life can disturb our interior joy and peace. For no matter what tribulation should come to us, physical or spiritual, the essential joy of the soul is not disturbed because the essential possession of the soul, which is God, is not disturbed. We can look, first of all, to our Lord in his holy passion. Our Lord, in his sacred human nature, had the beatific vision from the time of his conception in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so he was the he was in possession of God in his sacred human nature in the best possible way. On the cross, therefore, he had the interior joy of the possession of God. Even though his physical and emotional sufferings were intense, even beyond description. The same could be said for Our Lady, although she did not have the beatific vision in this life. Her life of grace was nonetheless so intense that her interior joy could not be disturbed by her horrific sufferings on Calvary. In a similar way, the martyrs of the church in all ages went to their deaths in joy and in peace, in holy resignation, forgiving and praying for their executioners. The nuns of Compiègne in the French Revolution processed up to the scaffold, the guillotine, one by one, as if in a holy procession, singing the Salve Regina. And someone looking upon them said that they went to their deaths with such, with such joy that they were like brides coming down the aisle to their marriage. It is this interior joy and peace in the face of torture and death, an entirely supernatural joy and peace, that won for the church so many converts. For the souls of men see in that supernatural joy and peace, something which they deeply crave. But someone might say, I lead a good life. I think that I am in the state of sanctifying grace, but yet I am often troubled and sad. The reason for this is that your spiritual life is not perfect. 
but is tarnished by worldly attachments. For where the world is, there also shall be sadness. The spiritual joys which the world affords are so impoverished and fleeting that the soul knows only momentary happiness which must be constantly filled in by another. Whether it should be the thrill of buying a new car or the fascination of some new gadget or the excitement of a new house or new furniture or the intoxication of the pleasures of the flesh or the ravishment of making or having money or spending it. The soul gets so little from these worldly pleasures that it finds itself in a nearly constant state of seeking and not finding. These joys are like parties which quickly come to an end. So if you have sadness, it is either because you are in the state of mortal sin and have the sting of a bad conscience, which is the greatest of all sadnesses. Or it is because you are in the state of grace, but you are envious of the prosperity of others or their gifts, or because you desire illicit pleasures, or because you love material things too much, or because you live for human respect and become depressed because you do not receive it. or because you love your human relationships more than your relationship with God. And when human beings let you down, as they certainly will, undoubtedly will, you become sad. Or like eating food devoid of taste, you desire to fill your minds with the insipid and vapid distractions of the television set. In my opinion, there could be nothing more depressing that the modern world affords to people than the activity of watching television today. It is depressing. Yes, you will find sadness, and at times bitter sadness, for these desires can only meet up with fulfillments which will assuredly and quickly fail you. In order to discover the interior peace and joy of Christmas, therefore, which we anticipate today in this subdued joy of Gaudete Sunday, the thing to do is to become more detached from the world and to be more attached to God. 
If you are in the state of mortal sin, then now is the time to be sorry for your sins and to confess. Even the hope of forgiveness in this sacrament of penance should give you interior joy, for hope always gives joy. And if you lead a good life and are in the state of sanctifying grace, then ask for the grace to become more detached from worldly things so that you may so that your love may be perfect and your joy may be full in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for joining us on Inveritate. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. Inveritate is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Arthur. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.